Well, as I've shared with some of you before, I became a Christian when I was 21. It was uh, my junior year of, of college. I came out of a very, very non-Christian uh, lifestyle and background. And those initial months for me were, were strange because all of a sudden I felt, I felt very alone in a lot of ways to where all of my old friends, um, yeah, the stuff that, that I used to love to do with them, I didn't, I didn't love anymore, and I began to become very grieved over. And I also began to become grieved because I saw how much the sin that I used to love so much was still destroying many of their lives. And then also the way that when I started to talk about Jesus and how he was changing my life, that it, it really changed a lot of our relationships. And um, I never really endured very super-duper hostile uh, persecution, but there certainly uh, was a lot of mocking and friends turning away and, and things that, that felt very isolating. And in the midst of that, I, I feel like my, fra- my faith was, I was resolved to trust the Lord Jesus, but it felt fragile in some ways. And one of the, the main things that God did in that season to help me was, was He brought His people around me in the midst of trying to proclaim the name of Christ and and enduring some persecution, what God used to help me to keep going in those early days was was his people. One particular guy, a guy named Shelby Abbott, and Shelby, uh, he met with me and we would meet up every every week at Taco Bell and we would open the Bible and go through it and he would help me and encourage me and we would would talk about life and talk about my sin and he just kept help encouraging me. And there were times that I I would... yeah, just shed tears with him over f- people who used to be friends who weren't anymore and how alone I felt in the midst of it all. And he kept in that time pointing me to Jesus and helping me to get integrated with his people. And I could see how God used his word and his people in those days to help me to keep going. And this morning as we come to the book of Acts, we are, we are seeing the Apostle Paul in his early days. And a lot of the same sorts of things happening for him that happened for many Christians. That when you come to know the Lord Jesus, all your old relationships begin to change. Some of them even become hostile. And now you need new help. And the Lord provides it through his people. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 20 through through 31. Now where we're going to pick it up is where we left off last time in uh, verse 19. Uh, chapter 9, verse 19, uh, we're going to see there that he was, this was after his, his conversion, he was baptized, he was taking food, he was strengthened. And then, notice at the end of verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, one of the things we haven't gotten into a lot yet in our study of the book of Acts is timeline and time frame. It's easy just to read through the book of Acts and think, oh, that happened in a couple months. But that's, that's not the case. This is happening over periods of years and even is going to turn into decades. So, for instance, here in verse 19, notice there are some days. You see that there? And then look down at verse 23. You see many days. And then down at verse uh, 26, when he came to Jerusalem. This is actually going to span a number of years that's happening right here. So let me just give you a little timeline. It just may be helpful. We won't do this all the time, but every once in a while it's helpful to to drop it and see see where this lies. So year 3334 is when Pal, Pal, no, it's something else. Paul, Paul encountered, that's what it was. Paul encountered, that's what Pal, Paul encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus. And he was, of course, converted and commissioned as an apostle. And he remained in Damascus, the very city he was going to terrorize and to kill all the Christians. He ends up staying there for verse 19, some days. During that time, he also retreated to Arabia, which is kind of the desert uh, countryside nearby, which is not mentioned here in the book of Acts, but he talks about it in another book of the Bible. Anybody know a book? Galatians. That's right, Galatians. (laughs) Galatians. Chapter 1, listen to this in verse 16. He's given a little bit of autobiography. He says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among, among the Gentiles. And I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. One of the things the Apostle Paul is very clear about in his ministry is I did not just get 
this gospel about the Lord Jesus from, from anybody, including the apostles. I got this directly from Jesus. He arrested me on my way to arrest Christians. He revealed himself to me. He took me into Damascus. I was restored unto him, restored to his people. But then I also spent time with him personally in this time of discipleship with the Lord Jesus. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but this was a very formative time for him. And then listen to this. This is still in Galatians. He says, Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem, which is in chapter 9, verse 26, to visit Cephas, who's Peter, and remain with him 15 days. So this is about three years from the time of his conversion um, at the, in the middle of chapter uh, 9 up to verse 26. So that's, I think it just helps us to orient that this is a, a long period of time. So you see some days and many days. This is a period of three years that God's working in this man, all right? Now, as we come to this text, what we're seeing is Luke is giving this overview of how God worked in and through the Apostle Paul as he's proclaiming the gospel. And I think the main thing that I want us to see this morning from the text is this, is that we must proclaim the name of Jesus and protect one another when persecution arises. We must proclaim the name of Jesus and protect one another when persecution arises. Paul is going to proclaim the name of Jesus. And as he does, persecution is going to arise. And God's, God's prescription to help him to persevere in the midst of persecution is the very church that he once tried to destroy. God is going to use the church, his people, to help him to keep holding fast in the midst of the fire. We're going to see that, how it worked for the Apostle Paul, and I pray that we'll see how it works for us as well. Let's begin. Uh, there's kind of three movements, if you will. We're going to see that Paul proclaimed the name of Jesus in verses uh, 20 through 22. And then we're going to see uh, in verses uh, 9, 23 down through 25 that Saul was persecuted by the world. And then 9, 26 down through uh, 30, we'll see that Saul was protected by the church. So Paul proclaimed the name of Jesus. Saul was persecuted by the world, and then Saul was protected by, by the church. Let's look here first at Saul proclaiming the name of Jesus, verse 20 through 22. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul is proclaiming the name of Jesus. Now you notice there in verse 20, um, he, where is he proclaiming the name of Jesus? Where is he doing this? In the synagogue, okay? So synagogues show up about 22 times in the book of Acts. They're, they're pretty prominent. This is the third time that we've seen synagogues so far. You have the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where uh, the priest would minister, the high priest ministers. Uh, that's where sacrifices are offered. But not everybody could make it to the temple. So in surrounding areas, you had synagogues, which were basically houses of worship that were in a lot of ways similar to even what we have in here today, where the, the word would be read, there would be hymns that would be sung, there would be fellowship, community together. So the synagogues were, were central to the life of, of Jewish people. And, and Saul regularly went into the synagogues to proclaim, proclaim Christ. So as, as Christians are, are spreading the gospel all over the Roman Empire, some of them heard it um, at, at Pentecost, and they go back and they're like, let me tell you what I heard. Others are carrying the message uh, out because persecution's going. So whatever reason it's happening, Christians are spreading all throughout Rome, and many of them came from a Jewish background. So naturally, when they go back home, where are they going to go? right to the synagogue. And they're going to say, 
guess what we heard? The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Son of God. And then it would be just like that. Crickets. And they would look at him and they'd be like, aren't y'all with this? And some would repent and believe. And then others, not so much. It would become hostile. And they would say, that's blasphemy. And it would begin to be a bit of a, a disturbance. Some would believe and begin following Jesus and a church would, would form and others would see that as blasphemous and oppose them. Well, word starts getting back to Jerusalem. Yo, all these Christians are coming out here claiming that Jesus is this Messiah and we've got to shut this thing down. It's tearing up our synagogues. We're getting divided over this, this Jesus guy, which is part of what Saul's mission was. Saul's original mission was, all right, I'm going to go to the high priest, I'm going to get some papers, and I'm coming up to the synagogues, I'm coming straight for, for Damascus, which had a bunch of synagogues, and I'm going to shut this thing down. We're going to hunt some Christians, we're going to lock them up, we're going to bring them back, and we're going to show them that you don't speak about this name, this name Jesus. Well, as we saw last week, the Lord said, no, you will not. And he arrested Saul on his way to arrest the Christians. And Saul wastes no time as soon as he is converted. As soon as he sees Jesus for who he is, what does he do there in verse 20? To, or verse 20? He proclaimed the name of Jesus. Immediately he did this. The persecutor becomes a preacher. And he went into the, the synagogues not to pull out letters from the, the high priest of Jerusalem, in order to lead Christians away to death, but rather he came to testify that the high priest of heaven had saved him and that he could save them too. Now, did you notice here, what's the content of his preaching? What is it that, that Saul is proclaiming in the synagogues? He proclaimed, what's his name? Jesus. That's his message. He came and he proclaims Jesus saying he is the Son of God. Now, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God is, is clear all through the New Testament, but Bible trivia time, how many times does it show up in the book of Acts? Once, right here. It's the only time it shows up in, in the book of Acts. But this is a radical claim that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became a man that he lived on the earth among us, that he spoke truth that we must obey, that he performed miracles that we must believe, that he died for sins that we committed, that he rose from the grave with power to forgive, and that he will soon return to judge all people for everything that they have done. That's who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And as we watch Paul go throughout the rest of the book of Acts, you're going to see him proclaim all of these sorts of things when he's talking about who Jesus, the Son of God, is. This is a miracle, by the way, that Paul is, or Saul is doing this. By the way, Saul and Paul are going to be interchangeable from this, this point out. It's the same guy. The message that, that he once thought was blasphemous has now become glorious to him. The message he once persecuted has now become precious. Saul was born again. This, by the way, is, I think gives us a little insight into one of the evidences that someone has been converted. One of the primary evidences that someone has been born again is that their estimation of Jesus changes. What you think about Jesus changes radically. For Saul, he used to be a rebel who deserved to die on a cross, but now he's the Redeemer. He's his Redeemer. For some, they see Jesus as, oh, well, he was a good guy, but when you, when you come to know him, you're like, no, he's the Son of God. For some, he would say, yeah, he's the Savior, but when you come to know him, you say, he's my Savior. Right? There's a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. One option among, every, among many to know he is the only way and he is my everything. When you come to know Jesus, your estimation of him goes up. And you see him as the glorious one who is worthy of your entire life. So who do you see? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Paul would say, 
He is, and you ought believe. Now notice here the response to his preaching there in, in verse 21. People were amazed. The word means to be beside oneself. To Another way to render it, struck out of your senses. Like, whoa, what is happening? And while the message itself is amazing, uh, that's, that's not, it's the messenger that they can't really figure out. Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? I mean, isn't, isn't this the guy who used to hunt Christians and now he's joined them? It, it seems impossible to everybody who's present here that the most feared oppressor of Jesus' people has not only stopped his miss, mission to harm them, but now he has joined the mission and is helping them to deliver the very message that he once sought to extinguish. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He who once sought to destroy the faith is now being used by God to, to build it. And notice here that Saul increased in strength. This does not mean that he started going to the gym and he started working out. He may have done that too. There's no evidence of that, but who knows? That's not what he's talking about here. This increasing in strength is talking about his spiritual strength and his ability to proclaim Jesus. Notice again, he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. The word for proving there, it means to, to combine facts in order to show something clearly. He's getting evidence from different places and putting them together to help people to see the only answer for what you're looking for and what the scriptures say is Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he's doing. So whether Saul was in, was in Genesis or whether he was in Joel, whether he was in Exodus or whether he was in Obadiah, whether he was in Leviticus or he was in Lamentations, whether he was in Deuteronomy or Daniel, it didn't matter if he was in law or if he was in the prophets, he was able to keep showing them Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus is what you're looking for. That the whole Old Testament, law and prophets, the whole thing is about Jesus. And that, that's his whole message. His whole message is about that Christ is who he claimed that he was. And it blew their minds. It says he was, they were confounded. They were bewildered. They were confused. By the way, I, just, I think we should pause here for a word of application before we move on to the second thing. I just want to ask you, and this is not a guilt trip, are you proclaiming Jesus, though? One of the things I'm hoping that we as a church notice as we go through the book of Acts is that the assumption is that if you know him, you're doing what? You're helping others come to know him. Like inherently, that's what it means to be a believer. That you're one who has gone from loving the world and the things of the world, and that God has given you a new heart that turns away from that and now loves Jesus who died in your place and rose from the dead, and that now you follow the way. And that as you follow the way who's leading you to the Father, that you're bringing as many people with you as possible. That's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, read through the gospel accounts when he's on his way to the cross. How many people he's bringing with him? Pilate, the executioner's there, and he's like, he's asking him questions. He says, are you asking for yourself or somebody else? He's, he's like, you trying to save me? He's like, you bet. And like, he's doing it all the way along, all the way to the cross. He's even taking guys with him. One of the thieves, right? Leads him, leads him to himself right then. And then as soon as he dies, the guy who was execu executing him right there, he says, truly is the son of God. He was innocent. The whole way, Jesus has taken people with him. And if you come to know him, that's what, that's what we do. There's not a lot of commands to share the gospel in the New Testament because it's, it's assumed. Like, what else are we going to do? Just build buildings and like sit around and clap? Like, that's... That's not what it means to follow Jesus. We're beggars who found bread. We're parched people who found water that, that if you drink, you never get thirsty again. We're sinners who's, who's found one who died in our place. Let's tell the world. So I would ask you, are you proclaiming Jesus to your family, to your, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, 
to your teammates, your roommates, old friends, new friends. And listen, we, I think we should also find a little encouragement here that we're, we're all imperfect proclaimers. When you read through, you see Saul grows in his ability to do it. You're going to see Apollos, one of the most gifted preachers in, I mean, in, in, in the first century, he's growing in how to do it. You've got Peter being reproved about how to live out the gospel. Every, everybody's in process, except for Jesus. He's the only perfect one. But everybody else is in process. And Saul himself here grew in his ability to proclaim Christ. So, Dory Baptist, let's be about it. Let's be about proclaiming the name and growing in our ability to do that and growing in our boldness to do that and helping one another along the way. Because we're going to need it. We're going to need the help of the church in the midst of that mission because when you proclaim the name, the heat gets turned up. Which brings us to our, our second point, that Saul was persecuted by the world. Saul was persecuted by the world. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Paul's proclaiming of Jesus as the Son of God has infuriated the Jews, and they've gotten to the point where they've decided that they need to do whatever is necessary to silence him. Again, the irony is, is strong here. The, one, the man, once championed by the Jews because he killed Christians, is now viewed as a traitor who must be muzzled at all costs and they're conspiring to kill him. Now, Paul gives us a little more insight into this, this plot to kill him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read to you from verse 32. Paul says, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So apparently, the Jews had worked together with the Gentile governor of the city to put Saul to death. Now, who else do you know who is hated by the Jews because he claimed to be the Son of God? So they conspired with a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate to put him to death. Saul is following the way of Jesus. He's, he's, he's following the same path, and he's experiencing much of the same suffering. Now, why, why do they want to kill him? Why, why do they want to kill him? Because they hated the truth he proclaimed and what it meant about them. Listen to what the Apostle John says in John chapter 3, verse 19. Speaking of Jesus, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the reason that people hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why people hate the true Jesus, because he is the light of the world, and when his presence bumps up against your life, the, the, through his word, it exposes us. This is one of the reasons I hated Christians. And I, I did it in a very passive-aggressive kind of way where I just kind of make fun of them and mock them. And sure, I'd be nice to them. I mean, I wasn't like out trying to, you know, physically harm people. But I was all about mocking Christians. I thought we were the most goofy, and we are pretty goofy, by the way. But goofy, like ridiculous, like, you know, conspiracy theory sort of folk that there were. I just thought it was nonsense trying to, con you know, mind control stuff for weak people. I just thought it was, it was crazy. But upon further review... What I realized, what I realized is I just love my sin and I didn't want y'all telling me about it. 
And I'd come up with all these sophisticated, well, I'm not super sophisticated. Some people came up with sophisticated sounding arguments. I was just like, y'all are stupid. You know, so that's, that was my kind of sophistication. But however, however people do it, that's always what's behind rejecting the truth of the gospel is I don't want you to tell me how to live. And by the way, be really clear, Christians are not trying to get the world to live like Christians. That's not what we're calling people to. Christians are calling the world to repent of their sin and to follow Jesus. We're all in the same boat. We're trying to follow him. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the perfect one that we're seeking to emulate. Darkness doesn't like light. It makes it uncomfortable. How many of y'all have ever had your sin exposed and you just start doing that like, yeah, what had happened was, and you just start deflecting and excusing and blaming everybody else, right? That's what's natural to us. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Covered up, hid, the woman that you gave me, Satan made me do it, right? Like that's, that's what we do. The Jews of Paul's day hated to hear that their thinking about God was wrong. That their religion was actually a pathway to hell rather than a pathway to heaven. That their zeal was misguided. That their sincerity was sincerely wrong. That their life was sinful and that they needed to repent and surrender every area of their life to Jesus. They hated to hear that just the same way that we naturally hate to hear that. They were comfortable in their own way of life, so they persecuted him. They plotted to do whatever they needed to do to shut him up, to get him out of their ear, to keep others from getting duped and deceived by him. You see, they saw his witness for Jesus as bigoted and hateful and deceptive and unloving, which is, of course, no different in our day. And Jesus warned this was coming, right? John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Suffering for Jesus and, the, and proclaiming his name, it can be very sorrowful. But it should not be surprising. Jesus said it was coming. This week, this past week, a sister in our church um, endured some severe persecution for the name of Jesus. She had been faithfully proclaiming his name and was pressured to step down from a, a dream position and give up some, some financial security that came with it because of her witness for Jesus. Because of the sensitivity of the situation, I'm not going to give too much more information than that right now, but what had happened was the Lord put her somewhere and she was loving her neighbors and she was being a faithful follower of Jesus. And as she was, she talked about Jesus. She was asked about the hope that was in her and she was honest. In the light of her gospel witness, it does what the light of the gospel witness does. It confounds and enrages people. And people plotted against her and slandered her. And you know what? She did not return evil for evil. But rather she followed the example of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.19 would render what our sister did this way. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you would follow in his steps. Just as Saul is, so did our sister do. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Dear sister, I want you to know that you honored your Lord this week. And I, I want you to know that I personally have been encouraged, and I pray that I would be able to endure the same way that you have. 
What helped our sister and what helped Saul and what helps every other Christian is the same thing that helped Jesus in the midst of his suffering. He did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. You look to the day that's coming and that the Lord is going to make all wrongs right. And that you know that Jesus is the overcomer because he rose from the grave and he's going to come back. And that's why you keep heralding in his name no matter what the world does. I was thinking about what our, our sister did and Hebrews 10 came to mind that she joyfully accepted the confiscation of her dreams and finances knowing that she had a better and permanent possession. One that you can't take away. Dory Baptist, if you follow Jesus, persecution will follow you. If you follow Jesus, persecution will follow you. Peter would say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Delray Baptist Church, no matter what you face for the name of Jesus, I want you to view, review, view that sacrifice as you would 10,000 years from now. Because in 10,000 years from now, whatever you lose today, you will be happy that you lost it. Because you get Christ and you know him and it will be worth it. And what Satan wants to do to his church is to continually look at what you're gonna lose now and how it's gonna hurt now and everything now and feel those pressures now. And that's real and we need help in the now. But we're helped today by looking to that day. The Lord will help his, his people. Saul here suffered a persecution to a degree that is beyond what most of us have ever faced. He was being hunted. I want to encourage you to think about that for a moment. He couldn't even go out of his house without knowing that he couldn't come to a bridge to get out of town without knowing that there's, there's these government officials who are watching for him everywhere he goes tracking his every move. Yet God protected Saul because Saul was not done doing whatever the Lord had for him. Verse 25, his disciples, Saul's disciples, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Just like Rahab, we read this morning. Just like David when, the other, when King Saul was coming for him. And one of the questions that you might ask here is, was it cowardly for Saul to run? Should he have just trusted the Lord and said, well, come and get me because I'm here to proclaim the name? Should he have stayed in Damascus no matter what? Matthew Henry gives us some wise insight here. He says, it is the duty of a Christian to avoid trouble if he can, just as our Lord bade his disciples when they were pers persecuted in one city to flee to another. Paul was carrying out that command of his master. It was not cowardice. It was actually the very soul of courage that he might go elsewhere to proclaim the gospel that he had received in Damascus. So when you face persecution, it does take great wisdom. Sometimes you're Stephen, and you stand, and you take the stones, and you go be with your Lord. And then sometimes you're Saul, and it's time to flee. That's not necessarily cowardice. It's where it takes wisdom and the Lord promises his spirit and his people will help you to know what to do at that time. Lord, help us. Now notice here, who was it that helped Saul escape? What's it say there in verse 25? His disciples. His disciples. Saul, notice here, already, this is three years now, he's been faithfully following the commission of Christ. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Right? This, Saul's been at it. He's been about what the Lord called him to. He's been making disciples. And now these disciples serve him in his time of need. But notice here, the way that the, way that the church protects Saul is not with violence. Did you see that? They didn't say, what? Let's get the swords. Let's get the bows and arrows or whatever they had in those days. Let's go get them. We'll show them who. That's, that's not how the Christians live. Jesus told Peter, put away the sword. 
Rather here, they lean upon the Lord and they ask for help and they get it, but they risk their own lives in doing so. Which brings us to our third and final section here. That Saul was protected by the church. So he proclaimed the name of Jesus. Persecution came because of it. And now, where he's going to find protection is actually among the people of God. The Lord Jesus will keep Saul through the church. Verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, as we heard back in Galatians chapter 1, it's been three years now since Saul's conversion. So three years that he's been growing in the Lord, that he's been strengthened in the Lord. It came to a, to a head, and he had to get out of town, right? So he comes down to Jerusalem here. This is his first trip back to Jerusalem. Uh, Galatians 1.18 again, three years. Now imagine what it's like for Saul coming back into Jerusalem. You remember, like before he left, when he left, he strutted out of town, didn't he? I mean, he was, he was on the top of his religious game in those days, right? He used to walk the streets of Jerusalem with pride because he was the next big deal among the Pharisees. He was admired. He was applauded. He'd pass by the synagogue, all the little synagogue groupies would be taking you know, Instagram selfies with him. And like, he's the man in town. Everybody knew who he was. But not anymore. He's going to come back into town a very different man. And the world is going to think very differently of him when he comes back. He's a wanted man now, so he tries to find cover with whom? With the Christians, right? Verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, when he was in Damascus, Saul grew to love the, the community of Christ there, right? I mean, the church loved him there. They showed him tangible love, forgiveness, encouragement. They stood by him in his persecution. They even helped him to evade death. So now he comes into Jerusalem and he's hopeful for the same thing. But, verse 26, they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So the church in Jerusalem had the same initial response to Saul as who did? As Ananias did back in verse 13, right? They were, they were afraid. They couldn't imagine that his transformation was true. The sins of this person's past were too much for them to get past. So rather than embrace him, they excluded him. Now part of this is certainly understandable, right? I mean, Jason Seville oftentimes will, will testify about what it was like ministering in China, where you regularly had to be aware that there was probably some sort of government agent who was there posing as a Christian to try and get more information about what's going on in, in the churches, right? So in one sense, yes, it's very wise to be on guard because the Christians are a persecuted people and they are trying to be taken out. And I mean, of all the places, Jerusalem remembers what this guy did. I mean, you rewind three years ago, this man was helping to lead the execution of Stephen. This man helped to lead the imprisonment of friends and family members. Their pastors were taken because of this man. But just as an angel paved the way for Saul with Ananias three years earlier in Damascus, now a, a different sort of angel, you, you might say, interceded for him at the church in Jerusalem. And his name was 
Barnabas. Old Barney. We love Barney. Barnabas, verse 27. But Barnabas. But Barnabas. Sweet words of contrast here. The Lord had someone in that church who was ready to help this man and intercede on his behalf and do whatever needed to be done to help him to get knit in with the body. Barnabas's name means something. Does anybody remember what it means from, from chapter 4? Son of encouragement. That's right. Back in chapter 436, we, we met this man, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was selling his property and giving proceeds to the poor. Now here, that same guy, Barnabas, takes Saul, who is poor in relational capital, if you will, because of his murderous reputation, and he ministers to him. Barnabas aims to be an agent of reconciliation. Saul needs the church. He can't just go into Jerusalem by himself. He needs the church, and the church doesn't know it at the time, but does the church need Saul? I mean, we're still reading his letters today, 2,000 years later. You bet they did. God uses Barnabas, a tender-hearted, courageous man here to bring them together. He vouches for Saul, and he helps the timid, uncertain, possibly unforgiving believers to open their hearts and their arms and their homes to this man. He says to him, listen, if, if Jesus welcomes him, we're going to welcome him as well. He intercedes for them. Pray that God would make you a Barnabas. Now, I know right now some of us would be like, well, I'd like a Barnabas. Okay, that's true too. <laughs> May the Lord bring you a Barnabas. But pray that God would make you one. Pray that God would make you a Barnabas, a son or a daughter of encouragement. That was his reputation. That was his name. He's the son of encouragement. Pray that God would make you generous with resources to encourage people. Pray that God would make you gracious in reconciliation. Pray that God would make you the sort of believer that if there's beef between a couple believers, that people would want to call you to come in and to help things get right. Because you're, you want to be tender-hearted. You want to be loving. You want to, be, you want to help the body of Christ to be united and strengthened. Pray that God would make you a Barnabas. And pray also, if you need a Barnabas, that God would give you one. And you know what? In all of us, in different seasons, Sometimes we're going to be able to be Barnabases and sometimes we're going to need them. It's not bad to need them. We need them. We all need them. And Del Rey, I want to say thank you for the way that I know that there's many Barnabases here. But may we all pray for, for wisdom, for opportunities, and for en endurance, endurance, <laughs> enduring endurance in the Barnabasing. So make it a verb. <laughs> Because it's not typically just a one-time thing. Be like, well, I'm going to encourage somebody. Oh, everything's well now. Off we go. Life's messy. Brokenness is hard. Wounds are deep. And it takes time. Love is patient, is what this same apostle would say later. Pray that God would give us grace to be the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus for suffering and struggling believers, for persecuted believers, that we would be a, a family that's a refuge for hurting hearts and broken lives. It's not easy, and we don't often know what to do, but pray that God would help. By the way, another evidence of conversion is that your estimation of the church changes as well. Remember, Saul used to see them as somebody they need to get stamped out. But now that's changed as well, right? Now the church, when you're a believer, you understand that it is a family. It's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood. The bride beloved by Jesus. Imperfect, yes, 
but in the process of becoming like her Lord. Jesus says, when you get me, you get my bride as well. Imagine inviting a married couple over for dinner and saying, hey, you can come, but would you leave your wife at home? That's not going to go well. Same with Jesus and his church. We don't get to say, I want Jesus, but I don't want his church. Part of the way we actually love Jesus is by loving our brothers and sisters in the faith. And I know this is not popular in our day, but it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous delusion to think that you can love Jesus and not love the church. The Apostle John says it this way, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So part of what God does in conversion is reconcile us not only to, our, to himself, but also to, to his people. Now, an important word of nuance here. We must acknowledge, as we say this, that unlike Jesus, his bride is not perfect. How many of you have ever been part of an imperfect church? Well, if you're part of this church, then you should raise your hand. This is an imperfect church. And, and I think if we're honest, some of people's deepest hurts have come from those who claimed to represent Jesus. And I want to say for that we are sorry. And I just want to say that if our church has contributed to that perception in any way, we want to know about it and we want to try and work through it. But we, are, we will let you down. We are an imperfect church, but we strive to be a place filled with Barnabases. And we want to plead with you to not give up on Jesus and his people because some people who claim to know Jesus have hurt you. One of the sweetest encounters I've had in the past couple of weeks is with a visitor who recently came and shared how much they've been hurt by the church in the past and how they feel like several different churches that they've been in that nobody, nobody has, has really loved them well and that they constantly feel like th they're tempted to lose hope. But they said, but I can't give up on the church. I can't. I know God doesn't want me to. And I just saw this person's faith leaning in and trying to risk, and trying to, with hope, saying, maybe, maybe it'll be different. Some of you may feel like that this morning, and I just want you to know the Lord sees that, and he wants to help you. And we'll be imperfect in doing it, but we want to help you as well. Delray, let us be a bunch of Barnabases, because we need it. We need it. We need help from one another if we're going to be proclaiming the name of Jesus and enduring persecution. Well, in verses 28 through 30, the same pattern that happened in Damascus happens here. He proclaims Jesus' name boldly. He disputes with the Hellenists, and death threats come. By the way, these Hellenists, these were the same people who opposed Stephen's proclamation of Jesus. So now the very ones that Saul had empowered to kill Stephen are now seeking to kill him. But, verse 30, the church again rallies around him, protects him by sending him to Caesarea, which is a seaport about 65 miles away, and then he goes off to his hometown of Tarsus, where he's going to minister in that region for about eight years. I'll show you some more of that timeline in, in messages ahead. But, but God is going to use, notice here, the church to protect Saul. The Lord surrounds Saul, in the midst of his suffering and his persecution, time and again with his own people. He's proclaiming the name, the world hates him for it, and the church says, we will help you. And they risk their own lives in order to help their brother. Which brings us to verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the third of seven progress reports on the church. So 
progress reports in school? Well, Luke's giving them all the way through the, the, the book of Acts. This is the third one where he pauses and say, let me give you a little update on how things are going. Praise the Lord. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of bloodshed and betrayals and backstabbing and in the midst of sweet fellowship and risking and reconciliations and prayers and encouragement, in the midst of it all, the Lord is building his church just like he said he would. And that was true in the first century, and it's true today. And until the Lord Jesus returns, that's what he's about, and that's what he calls us to be about. So Delray Baptist Church, we must proclaim the name of Jesus and protect one another when persecution arises. So would you pray and plan to proclaim his name? If you've been stagnant in that, might you bring it to the Lord, turn from that, and ask him to use you? Would you pray that God would make you a Barnabas? And would you pray that God would give you a Barnabas? And then finally together, let's persevere in the midst of the fire because Jesus is building his church. And soon and very soon, he's coming back for us. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we would believe it and receive it and obey it. And God, that you would strengthen us as a church. Oh Lord, would you, would you help us? Would you make us like Barnabas? Would you make us sons and daughters of encouragement who notice when others are suffering and downcast and on the fringes and might, might you move in us by the power of the Spirit to help us, to help others, to keep following in the midst of the fire? And would you give us increasing strength to proclaim the name of Christ no matter what comes? And Father, we pray. We pray for brothers and sisters who even here now are suffering. Those who, maybe because they proclaim the name of Jesus, are enduring persecution. Would you help them to make that known to others and might we respond well? We pray for those who will endure persecution in the days ahead and they don't even know it yet. Would you even now begin to give them friendships that they might be able to lean upon in those days? Oh, Father, might you ready all our hearts to serve one another and help one another. Give us grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.